Good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to the book of Ephesians? And we're in chapter 4 this morning. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. If you would stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. God loves his church. From the very beginning, Before the very beginning, he planned to set it apart for himself, for his glory, for his pleasure. The people he set apart, they are a new nation. They're a a family. They're a temple for, for him to dwell in. And even now, that structure is under construction. It's still happening. Yeah, the foundation has been laid. As Christ did the work, he descended from heaven to take the humble position of a servant. He obediently became our substitute by his death. He even went so far to endure death, the most excruciating, the most shameful kind of death, the death of someone who was cursed, death on a cross. But he rose, just like that song we sang earlier. He rose three days later, victoriously conquering sin. And then he was lifted up to the highest place. There is no higher place, a place of honor and a place of absolute authority. The apostles and the prophets, they brought definition. They brought clarity to that foundation, didn't they? And as people listened and embraced the word of God which they proclaimed, the good news of Jesus Christ, they became the building blocks 
of this God-created structure. It's incredible. And around the world, that structure continues to be built upon as more and more people, more and more building blocks are added to the church. This magnificent thing called the church. God loves the church. Not only did he go to great lengths to create it, but he longs to see it thrive, doesn't he? Just like parents, no, no, no parents, no, no, no couple gets married and gets together and says, we want to start a family. And so they start a family and the kids are born and then they say, okay, well, that's nice. Let's put them over here. We'll lock them in this room and we're done with that. We started a family. Good. We accomplished that. No parents do that, at least not healthy, sane parents, right? But what do they do instead? They start the family and then they know that once that family has been started, that it's going to take an ongoing going investment, right? And their desire is to pour into their children. And parents have to work hard to make sure that their kids flourish. It is not easy. They sacrifice their time, their money. They make sure that their children are well fed, that they have a roof over their their heads, that they're well clothed, good education, all of those things they want to provide for their children because they love them, because they care about those kids. Some of you may have wondered why your new pastor took a couple weeks off, spent some time away. It hasn't been very long, right? It's been four months or so, and I spent some time with my family. Why would he do that? And, they, and really, the answer is very, very simple. It's very, very simple, because just like the rest of you parents out there, I have been given by God a sacred calling to my family. To, to cause my family to flourish, to invest in them, to, to teach them, to disciple them, to do anything and everything I could possibly do to pour into them for their flourishing. And I've got to take that seriously. In fact, if I don't take that seriously, then how on earth can I help care for this family here? And that's the reasoning that Paul gives when he talks about qualifications for eldership. He says, these guys have to be able to take care of their families, or they're not going to be able to take care of the family of God. I've known so many pastors who who have invested everything in the ministry of the church to the neglect of their family. And the results are devastating. And they move away from their first calling as husbands, and their calling as fathers, and it's tragic. And everyone suffers. Husbands, wives, devote yourselves to one another. Take it seriously. Care for each other. Love each other. Press, pause, and take the time to invest in one another. As you do, you're not just ministering to each other. You are ministering to all of us as you put on display a picture of Christ stepping out of heaven, humbling himself and setting us apart for himself and making us his radiant bride. And dads and moms, I urge you, take seriously the calling to shepherd your children. Live and die by Deuteronomy 6, where it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children. You just talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And moms and dads, as you prioritize your family, intentionally setting aside time to spend with your family and teach them the truths of Scripture, you show your family and you show others around you the way that Christ has lovingly actively and intentionally given himself to build his church. That's what he's doing for us. We see here in Ephesians 4 that Christ's goal for his church, it goes far beyond our mere existence here. This isn't it's just the fact that we're here. There's, it, it doesn't end there. There's more to it. He wants it to grow. He wants it to mature. And just like parents desire to pass on to their children something of themselves, Christ wants his church to be a reflection of himself. That's what we see here in Ephesians 4. Verse 13, we see Christ's goal for his church is to attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. This is his desire that they become his people become increasingly Christ-like. That Christ's body, the church look more and more each and every day like Jesus looks. And that's what he means by mature manhood. He's not being chauvinistic here. He's not just talking to men. He's talking about the church as a body. And that the church needs to grow up just like a child's body. It needs to grow. It needs to mature. It needs to develop into adulthood. So Christ's body, the church, it must mature to look like Jesus. It's got to mature. The church needs to grow to look like Christ. If we're still crawling around in diapers, if we're still drinking milk, if we're still screaming every time that we don't get our way or biting each other or, or, or coming here and not taking responsibility for our own spiritual growth or neglecting to care for the spiritual growth that we have a part in, in, in each other, then we're not who we need to be. Babies can be cute, right? Melissa and I love this little Maddie. She's, the, she's a delight. She's a joy. She's just the sweetest little thing. But you know, after a year of baby stuff, I'm ready for her to grow up. <laughs> Enough crawling. Start moving those fat little legs and get up and walk. Enough screaming. Use your words, child. Enough making messes. Get your act together and start contributing to this family. Do some chores. Get a job. Enough already. Come on. Now, that might be a little extreme, I realize. But if she's 13 and still having these same kind of issues, then we have a problem, don't we? We have a little problem. I think there are too many churches out there a lot of really big, shiny, well-polished churches. They look all grown up on the outside. And yet when it comes to matters that really matter, when it comes to the health and maturity of their people, of their members, I think they're a little bit more like that fully grown 42-year-old covered in Cheeto dust and playing video games on the couch in mom's basement. 
they're not the mature adults that they need to be. And the question that we need to ask this morning is, what about us? Because really, it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, sure, there are those churches that look like they have it all together. But there are plenty of other churches all on the spectrum here of how fancy their buildings are, that whatever their needs are, and the maturity of the people is a separate issue, isn't it? Are we stepping onto this campus each morning and asking questions like, well, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of church today? Do people care about me? I didn't like the way that person looked at me over there. Hmm. Are they singing the songs that I like? Does the, does the guy have a good voice? Does he play the music that I like? Is the temperature in the room comfortable? I hear this one a lot. Not from you. Is the pastor meeting my needs? Is he measuring up to my standards? Am I getting my money's worth out of him? Do I enjoy his preaching? Do I like what I'm being fed? Or could I eat better somewhere else? And I I have to say, these are some things that I've thought from time to time. Are we asking those kind of childlike questions? Or are we stepping onto this campus and praying that the Lord would fill us with a certain humility and gratitude and joyful expectation for how he's going to work on me? Am I praying that the Holy Spirit would lead me to people as we mingle out there in that breezeway, that he would lead me to someone who needs prayer or who I can give a word of encouragement to, speak truth lovingly into? Am I looking for someone who, who, who just needs a friend or is hurting? Am, am, when I enter in through those doors, am I looking for my favorite spot or am I looking to sit next to someone that I don't know? Am I coming on this campus and I'm ready to sacrificially give of myself? Like Paul said, to be poured out like a drink offering. I just want to be, give myself for the sake of Christ and his people. That's where we're headed here in Ephesians. It's not enough for church to just exist. Jesus wants his church to grow and grow into Christ-like maturity. Well, what does that look like? Well, Paul speaks of unity of faith. He speaks of a maturity, a fullness of Christ, a growing up into Christ. And there are two key components that he lists here later on in our passage, and they are truth and they are love. Truth and love. Look at verse 15. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. When the body of Christ is headed towards maturity in Christ, there's a certain rallying around the truths of the gospel. We hold them dear. We unite around them. They are precious to us. We are committed to them. And our lifestyle starts to reflect what we see in the truths of Scripture. We, we say these things are essential. Truth matters, doesn't it? Jesus himself said that I am the way the truth, and the life. Truth is key. It's a fundamental, it's a fundamental piece of Christ-like maturity. But equally important is love. Love that Christ desires to permeate his people. Mature Christians who make up mature Christ, uh, churches, they're filled with Christ-like love 
for each other. Jesus said in John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. He says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, truth and love, signs of Christ-like maturity. Now, it can be really easy to err on either end of that spectrum, right? To err with it's all truth or it's all love. One member of the church might say, truth is all that matters. I'm going to be the watchdog of sound doctrine here. And without love, they make it their mission to correct every single little misword that someone speaks. This has a tinge of heresy. And they say, well, I'm just protecting the church. Yeah, but you're also destroying the sense of community and the spirit of grace that Christ came to establish. And you're creating an environment that's filled with pride and suspicion. And fear, that's what happens when you have truth without love. And another church member might say, well, love is all you need. I heard it in a song once. It's the only thing that really matters. We just need to come together despite our doctrinal differences. And there might be something to that. But if you go so far as to throw out those essential, fundamental truths of the faith, well, then you've kind of got nothing more than another hippie movement. And can we even really know what love is without truth? The answer is no. We can't. Truth and love, they can't be either or, can they? You've got, you can't be all about truth and not about love because Jesus is the truth and he came in love. And you can't be all about love and jettison the truth because love without absolutes, that's, that's not really love at all. Jesus was the embodiment of truth and love, and he desires for his church to be the same. And as we do so, we manifest a Christ-likeness. We foster unity and maturity among ourselves. We begin to demonstrate all those things that Pastor Greg talked about last week. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another's burdens, maintaining unity through peace, living in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, right? That's what Christ wants. Not enough for the church to just exist. He wants us to grow into Christ-like maturity. So the question is, well, how does that happen? How does Christ grow and help bring about maturity in his church? How does he equip his church? Here's Here's what Ephesians 4, 7 through 16 tells us. The big idea. The victorious Christ is actively, actively serving and leading his church by gifting each believer with unique gifts to serve each other and by gifting leaders to equip the body through the ministry of the word. That's it. Let's get into it a little bit more. Christ is victorious. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. And then he has this parenthesis here. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill 
all things. End parentheses. And these few verses, they can be kind of confusing. And they've been the source of a lot of debate among scholars. Some people, including some of the early church fathers, so this was early on that some people were thinking this, they read this and immediately thought of a passage in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 3.19, it says that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. And there's a lot of, a lot of debate about what that means as well. But, but they, they connect these two things, and they think that Paul in Ephesians right here is saying what Peter was saying, that there was some type of moment where Christ went down, he descended in the lower regions of the earth into Hades or hell, descended into the, the realm of the underworld of the dead. And that's what he's talking about here. But, you know, as, I, as I've studied and as I look at this more and more and have, have looked at the arguments backing up different opinions on this, I'm increasingly convinced that what Paul is talking about here is simply Jesus' mission of humility and sacrifice, descending, making himself low, which results in this glorious victory and exaltation. I think that he's referring to what he was referring to in Ephesians 1, 119, where he puts on display God's power. He, Paul's trying to help us understand God's power. Remember this? And what does he point to? He points to Christ's victory. Chapter 1, verse 19 reads like this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? This is what Paul wants us to know. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Now he's going to tell us about Christ and what happened here. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ has been victorious. I think that's what Paul wants us to see here. That's the point. He was humbled. Paul writes in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, be found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he descends. He makes himself humble to fulfill his mission. But then once his mission is completed, he ascends to a place of glory. And just like a conquering king sometimes, when they would go out to battle and they would conquer a town or a city or a fortress and they would take out the spoils of war and a good king would distribute that among his people, so Christ takes all that he has gained in his victory, in his exaltation and he lavishly pours it out on his church notice verse 8 paul is quoting psalm 68 here psalm 68 18 to be precise you ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious that the lord god may dwell there What the psalmist is describing here in Psalm 68 is the way God rescued those captives 
those slaves of 400 years of bondage in Egypt. In Exodus, we read how God brought war to Pharaoh. And plague after plague after plague, supernatural things were happening there. God declares war on Pharaoh. Pharaoh finally raises the white flag. It finally goes up. And when God's people finally are released from Egypt, remember what happens? They're given gifts, aren't they? The spoils are just poured. Go, yeah, take, take, take this, take that, take that. And they're just showered with a fortune. And God leads these former captives to a place called Mount Sinai. And what happens there? The mountain trembles as God ascends. He descended from heaven, came down and made war, was victorious, and he ascends the mountain. Do you see the similarities? They're there. That's what Christ did. For our sake, he descended, conquered sin, and then victoriously ascended. And just like Christ didn't say to those former slaves, well, I I got you out. I busted you out of prison. All right, uh, see you later. He didn't do that, did he? He doesn't leave them hanging. He doesn't abandon his people. God walked with Israel. And he provided for them. He provided instructions. He provided his law. He provided them leadership. He provided them food and water from a, water from a rock. It's incredible. He took care of these people. And in the same way, the victorious Christ is continuing to serve and lead his church. It's beautiful. Beautiful. How's he doing it? Paul tells us. He's actively serving and leading his church by gifting each believer with unique gifts to serve each other. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul doesn't use the same word here for gift, spiritual gift, that he uses in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. He uses here the word charis. The word for grace. When he talks about spiritual gifts in those other places, he uses the word charismata. But based on the context of this passage, it's very, very clear, there's very little debate, that he's talking about spiritual gifts here. Christ has given his church what is necessary for its growth and maturity. He's done that in part by providing each and every one of us with these gifts. And there are all kinds of gifts. And there are all kinds of lists, right? And the gifts vary in degree. They, de- they vary in scope. They vary even in significance. In various parts of Scripture, we see those different lists, and people try to compile them together. I think we come up with like 20 or so gifts when we do that. But it's not extensive. We see gifts of service. We give, see gifts of mercy, teaching, leadership, encouragement, and so on and so forth. But it but it seems clear that this isn't exhaustive. There are many, many gifts. Christ just pours gifts out on his church, and we're not, we can't really nail down the exact list, and there are no more. No, we can't really do that. And we'll talk about spiritual gifts more in, in days to come. But for now, the thing that we really need to concern ourselves with is that, that gifts have been given. We, we do have these things. And then what, is, what are we supposed to do with these things? 
Each member has been given a gift. If you place your trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you and gives you this gift. And it may be odd to think about this, but in a way, in a way, each one of us is a charismatic because we've been given these gifts. Our church is a charismatic community in the sense that we are supernaturally gifted people. Now, we could get into trouble here, right? There are a lot of churches out there who go crazy with this and, and come up with all sorts of different, different doctrine, and I believe leads them into a place that is not beneficial from the church and is not conducive to the flourishing of their believers. That's a conversation for another day as well. The crucial thing to see is we have been given gifts and they have a purpose to them. We don't have these gifts so that we can uh, <clears throat> flaunt them. Did you see my gift? Came out right there. Came out, yeah. Looks good, doesn't it? Show me your gift. Let me, let's see how they measure up here. We don't have these gifts for ourselves to, to, to somehow puff ourselves up, make ourselves look better. I mean, how can we brag about these gifts? They're gifts. A gift isn't there to speak about how significant or how important or how the, the, the receiver earned this thing. No, he didn't receive it. She didn't receive it. He was given a gift. A gift points to the generosity of the giver. The power of the giver, the creativity of the giver. All, it's all about the giver. The only part the receiver has in it is, well, receiving it, being thankful for it, and last but not least, using it. That's what Christ wants us to do with our gifts. He wants us to use them. And the reason that he has given us gifts, according to Paul here in Ephesians 4, 7, is so that we might use them to help bring about the maturity, Christ-like maturity in each other. So you can extrapolate just from that statement alone that if I don't use my gift, who suffers? Look at verse 15. Paul writes, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's the intention behind the gift, behind the gifts, that each member, each part of the body of Christ grow together into Christ-like maturity as the church, as all of us, use those gifts. Because each part, working properly, collectively, makes the body grow. In other words, Christ has intentionally designed his body, the church, to build itself up by the giftedness, the use of the gifts that each of its members have. The health and growth and usefulness of our church is dependent in part on you and I actively, intentionally using those gifts that God has given us for the good of each other. Let me say that again. The health and growth and usefulness of our church that's dependent in part on you and I actively 
and intentionally using those gifts that God has given us for the good of each other. Now, someone might say, well, I've had my fill of church. I'm done. I don't like what I see. I don't like what I've experienced. I don't like what's been done to me. And frankly, I'm fine on my own. I'm good. And to that, the Apostle Paul would say, you aren't good on your own. You can't do it on your own. Because the church is God's agent for your spiritual growth. You're incomplete on your own. Yeah, he's given you a gift. That gift wasn't for you. That gift was for them. And their gifts are for you. How are you going to get the good that's going to come out from them if you're not with them? Church is where you grow. Immersing yourself in it, being committed to it, using your giftedness for it, and allowing the rest of the body to do the same for you. That's the beauty of the church. That's God's plan for your individual growth. That's God's plan for our growth together as a church into Christ-like maturity. But, you know, I've been burned too many times. Too many times. I have no room, no love left for church. I'm fine with it just being Jesus and me. Okay. Well, explain. How can you love Jesus and say that you want to grow in Christ-likeness, Christ-like maturity, and at the same time, Reject the people that Christ loves so dearly that he descended, took the form of a servant, and became obedient. He gave his life for these people. And he knew all the garbage that that we have here, the stuff that no one else knows. And he knew all of that. If you knew the little about me... You'd probably say, see you later in a heartbeat. And, and, and vice versa. But this is the heart of Christ. This is the love that he has for his church. And if he had that kind of love for you and for me, then how can we possibly not love the church that he gave up his life to create? Yes, it's messy. It's so messy. Yes, there are failures. Yes, there are hurts. And, and I hate to say this, but I think there are even times when we intentionally hurt each other. And we want to stick that knife in just a little bit. Let them know, you, you pushed my buttons. Feel this. I think we do that sometimes, and it's tragic. But that's what happens when you get together a bunch of sinful people who are gradually being transformed into Christ-like maturity. You know, if you step on our campus during the week and you walk by this preschool courtyard out here, you're going you're gonna to see a sight, you're going to hear some strange things, you're going to uh, hear some yelling, you're going to hear some screaming, there's going to be some fighting going on maybe, and there's definitely probably going to be some crying. But we all know they're just kids. We, 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 we give them a pass, right? We walk by and we're like, oh, isn't that cute? You know, like that kid's biting that other kid. You know, oh, it's just so sweet. You know, oh, they'll, they'll learn. Yeah, they're not there yet, right? They're not mature. They're growing up. And so we give them a pass. That's what's happening in the church. We're like a, a spiritual preschool here. 
And sometimes we act out, and sometimes we do just the dumbest things. But the beauty of our preschoolers is that they have, they've got these loving teachers over there. We have some wonderful preschool teachers who are loving and shepherding these kids through those difficult moments. And you, you know what that's like if you're a parent. And you've got multiple kids, and they're fighting, and you're pulling them off each other, and you're speaking truth in their lives. That's, that's a gift of God. That's what we have here in the church. Life in the church is supposed to be the same way. You and I, we need refining. We need transformation. We need those rough spots in our lives to be polished out. But that only happens when we come together willingly use our gifts and pour out the love of Christ on each other. That's where it happens. You know, if, I, if I'm out on the trail somewhere, if I'm hiking with uh, Pastor Stiles out there, I know he loves to hike, you pick up a rock off the ground, chances are that rock is going to have some sharp edges. There's going to be maybe some dirt and maybe some moss. I don't know. What's, it's, just not, it's not pretty, right? But you go out in the ocean Actually, go to our welcome center after the service. There's some rocks out there. They've been in the ocean, and they've been covered over, washed over with water over and over and over again. Sand has been rubbing up against them, and they've been coming in contact with other rocks, tumbling around. You ever have one of those rock tumblers when you were a kid? You know what happens? The sharp edges start to go away. A refining process is going on. And that's what's happening as we're a part of the church and using our gifts and loving each other. Christ loves his church. He's actively working to bring about its growth by giving us gifts and enabling us and empowering us to use those gifts to serve each other. Are we part of this church because we know this is a place where Christ lovingly helps his people grow? Or are we tempted to keep our distance because we don't want to get hurt? Are we using the gifts that God has given us? Or have we gone the way of our culture and begun to look at this experience, this service, as kind of a spiritual movie theater? We just sit back and enjoy the entertainment. I I bought my ticket. I put some money in the offering. Now I'm just going to watch the show. That's not what church is supposed to be. There's one other way that Paul mentions here in our passage how Christ helps bring about church growth. The victorious Christ actively serving, leading his church by gifting each believer with unique gifts to serve each other. But he's also leading his church by gifting leaders to equip the body through the ministry of the word. Notice verse 11. Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for for building up the body of Christ. It's It's a modern phenomena of our society to pay professionals to do things for us, right? We know that we can't be the experts in everything, but we can be good at some things, and we go out and we work and we make money. And then for all those things that we can't do so well, well, we hire people for that. We get the experts in there, and we pay them for those things that we're not so good at. And the church has come to 
kind of adopt that same type of idea. That, it, that church, church members come and we're paying a handful of experts to do the work of ministry, to get the work done. We're just the funding. That is not the way Paul describes Christ's plan for the church. He says that Christ gifts certain people with unique gifts, yes, for teaching. Why? To equip. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, church leaders aren't there aren't the only ones who are called to serve and do ministry. Well, we minister alongside of each other. We're all ministering together. But Paul says that these people have been singled out and gifted in a certain way to, to teach God's word, to proclaim his truth, to, proclaim, to, to prepare the body to serve, to go out and do what they're called to do. Who are these leaders? They're the apostles, they're the prophets, they're the evangelists, the teachers, or the shepherds and teachers. The apostles and prophets, Paul already talked about them in chapter 2, verse 20. He wrote that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So through the apostles and prophets, God communicated his truth. It's truth that we all know and we love and we have in our Bibles. This is key. It's essential. We need this. And if we remove this or alter it in any way, well, then the foundation of the church starts getting shaky and we begin to crumble. Apostles, prophets, he mentions evangelists. These are the people who are specially gifted to get the good news of Jesus Christ out there to a very needy world. And now we're all glad... We're all here to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, right? We all need to be ready to have an answer for the hope that we have in him. But there are some, Paul says, who are particularly gifted in preaching, sharing the gospel with others, maybe even getting it out in creative ways. Melissa and I have some friends who are over in the south of Spain, and they've got a video ministry that they got going on there. And it is, they got videos going up and a, a, a radio broadcast that is proclaiming the gospel to Muslims. It's incredible. They're, they're, they're gifted in that way. I'm not gifted in that way, but they're, they're, the gospel is going out because of them. Evangelists. Then he mentions shepherds and teachers. Those pastors, those elders who are called to care for the souls of the people in the church, to feed them by preaching God's word, teaching them the word, equipping them with the word. And all of these members of the body, all of them that are specially gifted, are gifted to faithfully, clearly communicate God's word for the purpose of building up the church so that it might serve itself and grow. Paul writes in verse 12, The people with these gifts exist to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. These leaders in the church called to equip, but they're also called to guard. 
the people. They keep the people in the church centered on the core truths of the gospel and keep them from veering off and buying into all, all those books out there and those really well-spoken teachers out there and those intriguing new thoughts and new creative ways of thinking about Christianity or philosophy or whatever it may be. There's so many different altar uh, truths out there, right? They're everywhere. Christ doesn't want his people, his church, to be veering off, be tossed back and forth like a, a, a wave or a reed that's blown by the wind. So that's why these people are here. He's provided these uniquely gifted leaders. They are called to do everything, but they play a key role in equipping, in guarding, and also encouraging, encouraging the body to use their gifts, speak the truth in love. Christ loves his church. He wants it to flourish. He went to great lengths to create it, and he is going to great lengths to preserve it and see it thrive. He does this by gifting each believer with unique gifts to serve each other, by gifting leaders to equip the body through the ministry of the word. Church is where we grow. Thank God for his provision. Thank God that he hasn't put us together and then left us to figure things out on our own. Thank God that he's working supernaturally among us. Thank God that he's gifted each one of us so that we can bless and build each other up into Christ-like maturity. The question for us is this. Are we using those God-given gifts for the purpose that he's given them to us? Let's not be a church that's stuck in perpetual adolescence. I'm not saying that we are, but this is the encouragement that we have from the word today. Let's not be people who sit back, who are checking out, who are expecting everything, everyone else to do everything. Let's, let's be people who say, I'm still here. God's given me breath. I believe in the gospel. What's my part? How has he gifted me? How can he use what I have? Even as, as, as minuscule as it may seem to me, how can he use me to encourage, to bless his people, and build them up in a Christ-like maturity. Let's be a church in which each member is using their God-given gifts, however big or small, to help each other grow. And as we do, may we glorify and honor Christ as we develop in each other Christ-like maturity. This morning, we have the opportunity to encourage each other as we come to the communion table. As we come to this table, we celebrate the work of Jesus Christ. His descending, His sacrificing of Himself for us that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. Would our ushers come on forward?